The Gist is brought to you by Harry's, the new shaving company that offers German-engineered blades, well-designed handles, and shipping right to your door, all at a fraction of the price of other razors. Visit harrys.com for the $15 starter kit and get $5 off when you use the promo code THEGIST. And by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer and save up to 80% compared to a postage meter. Sign up for a no-risk trial and get a $110 bonus offer when you visit Stamps.com and use the promo code THEGIST. It's Wednesday, November 12, 2014. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. So Zabumafu's Jovian, the cockerel Sikafa lemur, has died. Now, of the words I just said, here are the ones I understand. The lemur has died. I do not know what Zabumafu, who jo- is, what Jovian was. Cockerel Sifaka. Anyway, the millennials around Slate have been hit pretty hard by the news of this dead lemur. So I now welcome in some of Slate's younger staffers. All generations are repped here in the office of Slate. We go up to almost 50. So here is Aisha Harris. Hello, Aisha. Hello. And Anne-Marie Lindemann, who just started doing some video for us. What's up, Anne-Marie? Ah, oh, nothing much. What's your Jovian memory, Aisha? Can we remember him? I just remember him being absolutely adorable. Adorable. It's very cute. And Amory, what do you remember of this lemur? I remember sitting on the couch and watching it when I was sick. Yeah. And I was into it because I like the Kratz brothers. Then these are Brothers Martin. I saw here this from the uh, AV, uh, the Onion AV write-up. Brothers Martin and Chris Kratz hosted the show where they'd often introduce kids to various wild creatures in their animal junction. Jovian was a frequent guest where he'd stare blankly at kids, bounce and eat mangoes or garbanzo beans. Is that Does that comport with your memory? Yeah, as far as I can remember. Not yeah. a lot of garbanzo beans no. are coming back. But the mangoes are? No, and how about the blank it. stares? Is that really what hooked you guys? <laughs> well, I mean, it was the eyes. The cuteness all derives from the eyes, the huge blank eyes. <laughs> and then it goes on to note other times, like when Jovian's character Zobu would talk or dance, he was played by a puppet. Did you? Were you too young to know that he was a puppet? Did you know he was a puppet, Emery? I did know he was a puppet. Did they disclose that? <laughs> I, I think I did know because I, I, I think I was actually probably too old to be watching this show when it came out because I think it was meant for yeah. preschoolers and I was like... 10 or 11 when it premiered so but it was just it was the cuteness of the lemur that hooked you yeah well yeah that and the animals the other animals so when a lemur when a beloved lemur from your youth dies what emotions do you experience nostalgia for my childhood Mm -hmm. it was 20 it was actually like not that much younger than me what made him so cute you say the eyes but what was it was a furriness bring bring jovian back to life through your words, if you would. Definitely the fur. I had a stuffed cat that was gray, and so this little lemur was just too cute to take. Mm-hmm. The fur, the eyes, it was small, cute, just cute. Perfection. Just a, just a cute lemur. We remember Jovian today and Zumbafu. Zumafu? Zabumafu. Zabumafu. And I want to thank you guys, by the way, very much. Thank you. Thank you. All right, on the show today, in the spiel, the fever in Song and Fact, and the viral video sensation, Too Many Cooks. If you don't know it, get to know it, because we'll talk to the creator of Too Many Cooks. It's a title sequence. It's a practical joke. It's a meditation on family, technology, entropy, and smarf. But first, when talking about business success, you can't leave out one important thing, the failures. Come along and see what's new. At Animal Junction, we're waiting for you. 
Adam Davidson, the founding producer of NPR's Planet Money, has been hanging out around Sunnyvale, California. Nice light, bad architecture. Yahoo's there, so's dozens of other tech companies. He wasn't looking for the successes. He was investigating the failures. Actually, he was looking at the failures to find the successes, sort of like tracking an apex predator by going through the bones of its prey and the occasional dropping. All right, maybe not. Here's an alt title for this segment, How Purple Chairs Explain Progress. Hello, Adam Davidson. Hey, Mike. So Weird Stuff, this is one of the companies you looked at. It's kind of a weird name because it's more like unwanted stuff, but what's important about weirdstuff.com? Are well, they .com? They are .com. All right. Yeah. How can and they not be? There's this enormous, like, 27,000 square feet. I mean, that's like, I don't know, two airplane hangars, something like that, filled with the detritus of the internet startups of Sunnyvale, California. So this guy, Chuck Schutz, he... If you're a startup and you collapse and your funding is gone and you're in a building that costs you 50 grand a month, you call up Chuck and you say to him, I just need everything gone. Give me whatever you can. And he pays by the pound or pays a tiny amount. He takes the cubicle walls, the computers, the desks, the, you know, some of these companies in Silicon Valley really make stuff. Like he actually has ingots of silicon and things like that. Oh, the Silicon Valley. Yeah. Yeah. And then also equally, if you're a big success, like, you know, if you're Google and you're in a tiny little place and then suddenly you get a lot of funding and you move to some giant place, you're like, well, I don't want to bring the old crap with me. I want to buy new stuff. So you sell it to him. But basically, it's a business that exists because of the constant pace of change in Silicon Valley. Like bodegas in New York, I don't think there's a huge business of like the wire racks that are hold up potato chips in bodegas. I think the the ones that were installed in 1973 are still Still doing the job. They're still doing the job. Yeah, the cats may have changed that are (laughs) lounging in those racks. Yeah. Yeah. But right, so the pace of change. Now, when we say the pace of change, that sounds good. Huzzah. But another way to say that is what this entire New York Times Magazine cover story is about, failure. The pace of change means how often things have failed. Change is failure. Every time there's a change, every time there's progress, there's also failure. So basically, the big insight that I got out of reporting up the story is that failure and innovation are partners. They're, they're two sides of the same process. So on one level, to get some real new innovation, to try something that no one has done before, rather than some small incremental change, you have to risk failing. Okay, that's obvious. Mm-hmm. And then when you launch whatever it is you do, a new podcast, a new candy bar, whatever it is, these days, most new products fail. But even the ones that do succeed, it's really just a matter of time before they fail. You know, stone axes that were used 285,000 years ago were still used 30,000 years ago. So, you know, they they didn't fail as a product for 250,000 years. These days, obviously, lots of products fail within weeks or months of being issued. But even the products that do succeed, maybe especially the products that succeed wildly, like the iPhone or whatever, leave a wake of failure behind them. They, you know, rip apart existing supply chains, existing business models, and force lots of other people into failure. Basically, the core idea here is that in the 20th century in America, we failed much less often. And so failure became this scary, rare thing, like you would talk quietly about your uncle. I remember my grandmother sitting me down after my grandfather died and basically telling me my grandfather was a failure. Mm -hmm. And it was this very emotional, difficult talk. And failure was like this stain And what I'm trying to argue is that we are entering an age where to make money, we're all going to have to innovate in some ways, big or small, and we are all going to have to dance with failure um, all the time. It's going to be a big part of our lives. So you talk about the failure loop. That is the the, the hundreds of thousands of years with that Sumerian axe, right? The loop is... hundreds of thousands of years from 200,000 years ago to 30,000 years ago. Now with the iPhone, it's 
18 months. I think that there's so much psychology here, and I wonder why that is. Is there a way for big, huge, clunky industry like steel to not think of itself as a failure, or is the failure more felt in a huge industry that's creating big things you could touch as opposed to microprocessors? So I think failure is particularly disorienting and and difficult when it carries with it some massive supply chain. So when you think about U.S. steel in the 1970s or you think about General Motors in the 1990s, you're talking about hundreds of thousands, millions of people around the world whose livelihood is invested in one business model and creating one specific set of products in one specific set of ways. And then when a challenger comes, all of a sudden you have this massive dislocation, which just reverberates around the world. Obviously, like cities in the U.S. are destroyed. You know, so I'm of the belief, and there are people who disagree, but I'm of the belief that Silicon Valley is not just where innovation happens, but it's really how, it's kind of where our society is heading. It's a model for how we should fail. For how we should fail. Yeah. So if you think about, the key things to me are Organizational structure. So, so what is the nature of a company in this age? It has to be a bit more nimble, a bit more flexible. Financing is a huge, huge thing. It's so boring. Nobody wants to hear about financing. I am of the belief that we're all going to have to engage financing. That we're going to have to think about how to invest in ourselves over the course of our careers. How you know, invest in education, invest in maybe entrepreneurial ventures, or invest by taking a lower paying job in a in a new field, that kind of thing. And that's going to involve a different approach to money. Anyway, those are all the lessons I think Silicon Valley can show us about how to thrive with failure. It does seem that all the people who right now who are good at it are people with a lot of resources, people who are smart, people who can bounce back. But it does seem that the people with less education or the people even with an average amount of education and resources are going to have a big problem with this. And if this is trending towards, sure, maybe it's not going to be the case that 20% of society are going to be able to fail. Maybe because of arguments like yours, people will convince themselves, I need to be innovative and those people will expand the pool to there's 30% of people, 40% of society will be able to incorporate failure. Still a large percentage of society that will not be able to bounce back and, you know, reap the rewards of the 21st century. I think that's absolutely true. And I feel like you can make a compelling argument that as many as 80% of Americans are not going to be net beneficiaries. I mean, they're, they're going to make less and less, and they're going to have more and more uncertainty and volatility in their lives. You know, hopefully... Their children will learn and adapt as society changes, maybe. But it's pretty easy to make the argument that well over 50% of Americans are are just in for a worse, more scary, more uncertain life. And I think, you know, that probably, in my view, is a, is a time for government intervention, some kind of something. One thing I do like to point out, though, is this is not new. I mean, the, the 20th century, and when I talk about the 20th century, I'm really talking about like 1924, the dawn of the modern corporation with General Motors, say. It's a period of real backwinds where you just have, you know, what is that, two and a half generations, whatever it is, mm-hmm. of people who um, had a fairly steady path to the middle class where income steadily rose, where the poor got richer faster than the rich got richer, which has never happened before or since. Most of human existence, most people have struggled and faced failure all the time. Most people who've ever lived were worried about this coming winter and would they survive, would they have enough calories to feed their children, that sort of thing. So we built our country, our modern country, around this kind of blip that is gone. So 
and it only existed for a minute, you know, historically speaking. I do think we have a shot in the 21st century of both increasing the size of the pie and distributing the pie appropriately, appropriately enough that more people win than lose. But yeah, I mean, that would take both society to evolve and visionary leadership and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So, so I, we don't see that right now, that's for sure. Well, for this and that explanation about how the purple chair explains modernity, Adam Davidson has written, Welcome to the Failure Age! Exclamation for the New York Times Magazine. Adam, I want to thank you, and I want to point out that when you write a bit of prose that isn't quite great, appending it with an exclamation is a really great way to convince the reader that it's more profound than it is. Okay, a couple things. I didn't write that headline. Mm-hmm. Although I but think you insisted pr- on the exclamation, right? I did. Ex- yeah. 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 I, I, in my contract with the New York Times Magazine, everything I write ends with an exclamation point. Are you saying this wasn't great? It was a really good article. Adam Davidson. <laughs> Thanks. Did you know the month of November is upon us? If you're mustachioed or even Van Dyked, you knew that. November is the mustache month. You know, just as an ad, we got into this. This is an ad for Harry's, Harry's Razors. You're saying to yourself, wait, razors, hair, they're the enemies of each other. No, let me make an analogy. Just as the animal trainer loves animals, though he tames them, so too does Harry's celebrate facial hair, though he tames it. They tame it. In fact, you could tame it through Harry's special offer. Harry's is offering just listeners a starter set that starts at $15. It includes a razor. It includes three blades and includes your choice of Harry's Shave Cream or the new Foaming Shave Gel. I shaved with Harry's today. It looks good. I think it looks good. Pretty smooth. Harry's is really great. They own a 93-year-old German factory. They've been disrupting the shaving industry for around two years. Get on board with Harry's this way. Go to harrys.com now, and Harry's will give you $5 off if you type in the code THEGIST with your first purchase. That's H-A-R-R-Y-S dot com, and enter the coupon code THEGIST to check out for $5 off and change the way you shave forever. There's this new TV show. Here's the theme. It takes a lot to make a stew. A pinch of salt and laughter, too. Scoop of kids to add the spice. A dash of love to make it nice. And you've got too many cooks. Too many cooks. Too many cooks. I mean, it doesn't... Is it new? I mean, there's mom, there's dad, there's a kid, there's another kid. They're doing what people on TV do, what families do. Well, there, there's another kid. There's grandma. I can't remember when and where Too Many Cooks aired, if it was part of the TGIF block, if it was the lead-in to She's the Sheriff. Wait, there's another kid, and there's a lot of cooks. But of course, if you grew up with Too Many Cooks, you cherish the memories of, wait, what is that, a a shirtless fireman? All right, here's the thing. If you haven't seen Too Many Cooks, stop the podcast now and Google it. Give yourself over to Too Many Cooks. Come back, join us now. Thank you. Too Many Cooks. I won't give away what will become apparent once you go to the YouTube page that contains Too Many Cooks. It is 11 minutes long, and they don't seem to ever get to the show, and what kind of show it is changes, and then it gets meta, and then it wraps back in on itself, and possibly cures pleurisy or promotes insanity, unsure. If you look at it one way, Too Many Cooks is the longest TV show ever that never gets to a TV show. If you look at it another way, Too Many Cooks is the most time-efficient way to learn the history of 80s and 90s non-cable television over the last 20 years. 
Casper Kelly is the brain behind Too Many Cooks. He works for Adult Swim, where his main gig is uh, pr- producing and writing the show. Your pretty face is going to hell. Hello, Casper. Hello, I am basking in this intro and it's being said in your voice. This is like manna to me. Thanks, man. So was the idea, I have read in interviews where you talked about Letterman and Andy Kaufman, and I don't know if you use this phrase, but I call it the 360-degree rule of comedy. It's funny, it's funny, it's unfunny, and then it gets funny again. So was the idea to do that, or was it a little more simple, like what if there was a TV title sequence that never ended? It, it was both of that. It was the, the never-ending and hopefully that leading to the 360-degree rule, as you say. But I just loved that idea of it just not ending until everyone had to turn it off. And the original idea was that it would just be straight credits for the full 11 minutes. Strangely, with an 11-minute title sequence, you've actually left them wanting more, which I wouldn't have thought would be possible. <laughs> I agree. I am gobsmacked about the whole thing it's 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 like a little self-indulgent thing that you make and you love and to see so many people love it is i wrote it's more surreal than the than the show itself yeah so in the title sequence uh, and i'm talking before it becomes a cop show and before it becomes an outer space show when it's kind of rooted in the couch-based comedy, family comedies. I see some Mary with children. I see some Roseanne where the camera is rotating around the table. I definitely see some family matters. I think that the Urkel show has the almost exact same font. What else am I seeing there? Definitely some uh, Cosby and some Small Wonder, like uh, the boy lifting weights and a lot of that. I think, I think we got it from Small Wonder. That show has a wonderful stiffness to it. Vicky the Robot, how could it not? <laughs> she's, <laughs> she's fantastic, made of plastic. You know, Small Wonder, <laughs> I've often thought this about Small Wonder. Like, a lot of these shows, a lot of these title sequences do essentially what you do. They show the characters doing something. And, um, like, let's take Who's the Boss. Like, Tony is vacuuming the curtains with a vacuum, right? Or he's, like, yes. in the shower. Like, he's actually doing something a little exciting. But if you look at Small Wonder, what they're doing in the su- title sequence is the dad sits on a lawn and, like, opens a bag lunch. <laughs> <laughs> the woman goes to the sink and looks at the camera. It, it couldn't be less exciting. It just has to be seen to be believed. It, yeah. It's so much worse than we could ever think a TV show would be. It's almost as if they hadn't watched TV before inventing Small Wonder. I kind of thought it was like if aliens were observing broadcasts and tried to recreate a Earth sitcom. Yeah. That would be what they do. Right. It's like an Earth sitcom translated to Alien, translated to Zombie, translated to French, back to Earth sitcom, and then we get Small Wonder. And just in case whoever made that is listening to this, I don't mean anything personal. Oh, no, no. It's I love it as well. Triumph of the genre. Were there any kinds of shows that you wanted to get in there but didn't work out for whatever reason? Well, that's a great question because the temptation is to want to do everything, mm-hmm. wanting to do every genre. Gunsmoke, or uh, and reference other like to suddenly have a girls' boarding school, for, like Facts of Life or something. Right. But the thing is that even though I would love to put that all in there, there's the right amount that it can carry before you need to move on to something else. Exactly. Smarf. Where'd Smarf come from? Oh, that was it was uh, based on Alf, and I was kind of going for an off-brand Alf. Uh-huh. And uh, this is a reference for the older viewers, but I wanted it to be like the cracked magazine, Alf to Alf's Mad Magazine. 
That is the greatest analogy. And it exactly is because it has no cuddliness to it. Like it should, again, on paper, it, you know, it's a cat. He's furry. <laughs> he's smiling, but it's off-putting. Yes and yes. <laughs> did it break your heart to kill Smarf? Yeah, it did, but it was so powerful. It's one of my favorite parts, so it had to be done. Who wrote the theme and uh, how many iterations did you know you have a winner when he played it to you? It became such a bear and so complicated to do that. We ended up using two different people, uh, Sean Coleman and Michael Kohler, who do shows at Adult Swim, because they both said it was the hardest thing they ever did, and it it broke them. Uh, And I definitely had a long time where I wanted it to basically be a version of Facts of Life Mm -hmm. and that feel, and I had to just get over that and realize this was its own thing, and it was mesmerizing. And I had to get over that idea of a love of an idea I had and realize this new thing is awesome. Do you know how many views it's up to on YouTube? Well, I think it was originally put up by a a fan, Mm -hmm. and now it's the official version is Adult Swim. But if you add them together, probably five million. Five million. And so people are experiencing this on YouTube or on some other player, and they're seeing that it's 11 minutes, and they're coming to it because they were, you know, referred there by Gawker. When it originally aired, it was just, what, tucked in, like, the 4 a.m. overnight block? Was the idea to fool people or have people after a while go, what the hell is going on? Absolutely. Adult Swim uh, and Mike Lazo have a thing where they're making fake infomercials to air at 4 a.m. to befuddle people who happen to be changing channels. Uh-huh. This idea was not an infomercial, but it ended up fitting in that idea as well of something to mess with someone in the wee hours. Did some of the early reaction actually come from people who were watching it as it was intended to be watched before it went viral? And is that the most satisfying reaction of all? Yes. When it aired, you know, I, the next morning I went to Twitter and people were tweeting about it, which was... Uh, Super gratifying, and a lot of uh, people saying WTF question mark. Yeah. But I got to say that as a person who likes to analyze things like Donnie Darko, I'm super gratified now to see this long analysis on various websites of the, the deeper meaning. Are any of them pointing out things to you that you never meant but say, you know what, not a bad point? The, a lot of the analysis is stuff I don't expect, and it makes sense. And... I work on an intuitive level, so it might very well be true. I'm, I'm doing things I don't understand. Right. Could you give me a specific? Yeah, I think I've read themes about, you know, nostalgia for a simpler time in America and the killing off of that as we hurdle to this rush of technology and this singularity and all this scary change that's uh, coming our way. That's deep. <laughs> yeah. And you're like, you know what? Not untrue. Casper <laughs> <laughs> Kelly's main gig is he's the creator of Your Pretty Face is Going to Hell on Adult Swim. He's written for Squidbillies. But uh, you know him from Too Many Cooks, the internet phenomenon that will never end. Thank you, Casper. Thank you so much. This is a huge, huge honor. Mailing your letters and packages has gotten a lot easier and quicker by using 
Stamps.com. Yeah, you knew I was going to say it, right? Yes, I said it. Stamps.com. But it's true. You could mail and ship anywhere. You use your computer and printer. You don't have to go to the post office. Maybe you have a small business. Maybe you're like, ah, what's the big deal? At the end of the day, I'll go to the post office. I'll mail my stuff. But you know, sometimes the end of the day drags a little bit. And you're like, oh, got to go, got to go, got to get out of there to the post office. And some days you miss the post office. Or sometimes you leave early to get to the post office. None of that. None of that. You don't need to do any of that. You own a small business. You're the real heroes, some politicians tell us. So you stamps.com. You get a digital scale if you sign up. You print real postage right from your computer, and there is a special deal, and here it is. If you use the promo code the gist for a special offer, you get no risk trial, $110 bonus offer, free digital scale, and up to $55 in free postage. So you go to stamps.com. That's the actual website, stamps.com. There's a microphone icon at the top of the homepage. Click it. Type in the gist Get that bonus offer, that's stamps.com, and enter the gist. And now the spiel. I got the fever. So as you know, I was a bit sick. Thought it was food poisoning or some disagreeable muscles. Might have been something else because I ran a fever, a slight fever. It was reported as 103. That was actually a misreport. Here's New York City Commissioner of Health, Dr. Mary Bassett, clarifying my temperature. The number 103, which was quoted in many media outlets, was incorrect. The patient never got it wrong. It just got conveyed in the wrong way. So it wasn't so bad, right? But I haven't had a fever in a long, long time, and it just felt really crappy. I forgot how crappy it felt. The sweats, the clamminess, the lethargy. I forgot this, or or I actually got to thinking, did I forget what a fever felt like, or had I just been brainwashed by popular music? So this song, which played in the background as Les Nessman got ready for a date, as we heard about on a recent episode of The Gist, this song, wildly popular, also wildly inaccurate. That's not what a fever feels like. And this is not what a fever feels like. Burn in Love by Elvis. Fever, as experienced in real life, is nothing like fever as portrayed in song. In real life, it's uncomfortable and enervating. In music, it's energizing and sometimes downright sultry and always on key. Never know how much I love you. Never know how much I care. When you put your arms around me, I get a fever that's so hard to bear. You give me fever. Now, there are a lot of ailments, the depiction of which are at odds with how they're actually experienced, like amnesia, extremely rare and almost never as pronounced as shown in the movies, but such a useful plot device, you see why writers go for it. Or schizophrenia, it gets confused with split personality disorder. But those are disorders few people have experienced firsthand. Fever? We have all had fever. Why have we decided to pretend it's jaunty, uplifting, and romantic? What if we did this with other ailments? What if we invented fictional properties that we assigned to them whenever we referred to them in song? Like if headaches were said to allow for x-ray vision. I got a migraine in my head and I can see right through this wall. Or I got back knee, back knee. It's making me attuned to nature. 
I think I know why. It's because fever, actual fever, is bad. But when you think about it, it's ordinary in its crappiness. Whereas the expression of art, art's usually about good feelings, transcendence. But even when art focuses on the bad or the awful, like in a Goya painting or a Nine Inch Nails song, it's about something on one end of the experiential spectrum. There are a lot more songs about being in love than being indifferent. If that weren't true, imagine how Air Supply's catalog would change. I'm all out of interest. I'm unfazed without you. Or, here I am, the one that you recognize from somewhere, asking for another day. Understand, the one I think I might have gone to high school with or maybe seen at the bus stop in so many ways. And then, of course, the world famous making lunch out of nothing at all. By the way, air supply for a group that only has one theme sure has a lot of grammatical mistakes. Like, here I am, the one that you love should be here I am, the one who you love. And two less lonely people in the world should be two fewer lonely people in the world. But, you know, in order to make that point, you know what I realize? I realize I am back to normal. I'm firing on all the cylinders and I am no longer delusional about anything other than my singing ability. Making lunch out of nothing at all. Making lunch out of nothing at all. Some graham crackers out of nothing at all. Crumbs of bread out of nothing at And that's it. Andrea Salenzi is able to be the gist producer because of the spectacular flameout at her last job. She produced a call-in radio program dedicated to the indigenous peoples of Southeast Asia. It was called Among the Hmong, just didn't get good ratings. Joel Meyer, managing producer of Slate Podcasts, used to work at a McDonald's. Things did not work out well. He waged a one-man war on the limited time-only nature of a popular beverage, but was fired for serving out-of-season shamrock shakes. As executive producer of Slate Podcasts, Andy Bowers is a success. But did you know he failed as an athlete in high school? He trained very hard for the heptathlon. But when he got to the meet, he found out that instead of being six events spread out over two days, it was a single fun run, but all the participants were required to be afflicted with hepatitis. You can subscribe on iTunes and give us a listen on Stitcher. Our daily email sign-up is slate.com slash gist email. Similar thing is going on at Yo. You download that app and then subscribe to podcast. When the show is ready, we'll let you know via Yo. We have a Facebook page that I'm on pretty much all the time. There's really no other way you can email us, but to interact with everyone else and to interact with me and Andrea, I would recommend the Facebook page. That is facebook.com slash slate gist. I'm on there all the time. And email us at thegist at slate.com. I do want to cop to one of my great failures, but without it, I wouldn't be the person who I am today. So I try to pair two great loves. It was a line of cookies based on media personality. First, we trotted out Ted Koppel's Stroop Waffles. Did not succeed. Then we went with former CNN anchor and political consultant Stephanie Cutter. We had Stephanie Cutter's Nutter Butters. That didn't work. So then I got out of the news business and went with relatives of celebrities like Hedy Lamar's brother Al. But Al Lamar's Malamar's, that's what really sunk us. Thanks for listening.
I'm Hannah Rosen. This week on the Double X Gab Fest, we're going to talk about Amy Poehler's new book, Yes, Please, and whether we still love her after reading it. Find out on Thursday's Double X Gab Fest. Look for us in the Slate store on iTunes or at slate.com slash podcasts.